I want you to turn with me for an introductory reading of Scripture to 1 Corinthians. Paul's epistle of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And of course, as we've stated, we're looking this evening at the subject of Unitarianism. And let me just say we will be touching on this as we go through uh, tonight's study that Unitarianism is commonly known in our province in the form of the denomination titled the Non-Subscribing Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And maybe you've seen that name or that sign outside buildings and you've wondered what it is. Well, you'll know by the end of this evening what they believe and they are termed also as Unitarians. But let's read the scriptures first of all. And we'll only take uh, two verses of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul asks rhetorically, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of the thing preached, the gospel, to save them that believe. Maybe you've come into the building tonight asking the question, who are the Unitarians? Well, you may not know this, but there are many prestigious names of history that are among those who class themselves as Unitarians. From the first slide up here on the screen, you will see that five past presidents of the United States of America class themselves as Unitarians. If you look up at the far corner left, you will see John Adams, and then if you look at the far right, you'll see John Quincy Adams. In the middle is the famous Thomas Jefferson. Over in the left, bottom corner, Millard Fillmore. And over here on the right bottom, William Taft. All of them Unitarians. And then when we turn to the literary world from politics, we find out that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, most of you have heard of Longfellow, and also Ralph Waldo Emerson, and the famous Charles Dickens, all class themselves as Unitarians. There have been no less than eight U.S. Supreme Court justices classed themselves Unitarians, and some famous women have also been Unitarians, including the Lady of the Lamp, Florence Nightingale, and several famous scientists, not to name any less famous than Charles Darwin and Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, were Unitarians as well. Under the umbrella of the title Unitarian Universalist, which I'll explain later on, the members of Unitarianism comprise approximately 25% of those who are listed in America's Hall of Fame. Not just famous politicians, famous literary writers, famous scientists, famous justices, uh, in the courts, but also 25% of America's Hall of Fame class themselves as Unitarians. Now let me give you a definition of what a Unitarian is by the mouth of two Unitarians, whose statement is found on the, the Unitarian website of St. Stephen's Green Church in Dublin. It's defined by Paul Murray and Andy Pollock, and they write this, Unitarians are people of liberal religious outlook. Now please remember that. Who are united by a common search for meaning and truth. 
low of Christian origin and still following the teaching of Christ as a great and godly leader, Unitarianism today also seeks insight from other religions and philosophies. Individual beliefs within our religious community are quite diverse, and personal religious development is seen as a continuing process. Unitarianism has no set doctrines or dogmas. The broad beliefs of the Irish Unitarians are summed up in the introductory statement in the Dublin Church's monthly calendar under the three central Unitarian principles of one, freedom, two, reason, and three, tolerance. The statement reads like this, I quote, Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest for truth is its sacrament and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge in freedom, to serve mankind in fellowship, to the end that all souls shall grow in harmony with the divine, thus do we covenant with each other and with God. This is a liberal form of so-called Christianity in our world today. We'll see later on that it's far from Christianity, but it is the epitome of all Christian liberalism. Practically, it is meted out in their belief in no absolutes in the moral realm. In fact, not only is morality relative, but all truth is relative in Unitarianism. That means there is a tolerance of various alternative lifestyles that we see in our world today in our modern contemporary age and culture. Lifestyles such as homosexuality, views such as radical feminism, practices such as abortion on demand are all condoned under the umbrella of the religious so-called Christian organization Unitarianism. Not only are these practices condoned and justified, but all religious beliefs are allowed as legitimate under the umbrella of Unitarianism. Now, that might come as a shock to many of you who have passed uh, doors with signs above them, non-subscribing Presbyterian Church of Ireland, that they should believe such things and should condone such immoral and unbiblical practices in our modern age. Perhaps one of the reasons why we've so easily been duped here in Ulster is we're so familiar with denominations in not just Ireland but in Scotland that call themselves Presbyterian. There's a plethora of them. Here in, in Northern Ireland alone, there's a Presbyterian Church of Ireland. There's the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. There's the Reformed Presbyterian Church. There's the Free Presbyterian Church. And then if you go over to Scotland, there are many more, and there's the Wee Frees and others that we could name tonight. So whenever we see a sign over a door entitled the non-subscribing Presbyterian Church in Ireland, we assume that it's just another of the same. But then we are really surprised when we hear what they believe and what they propound as the belief and tenets of their faith. So let's look at more detail at Unitarianism, and specifically in our context of Northern Ireland, the non-subscribing Presbyterian Church. Let's look, first of all, at their history. Now, if I can give you a short history lesson, 
During the plantation of the north of Ireland, you will know from your ancestry that a great number of Scots came to settle in this province of Ulster. And during the first half of the 18th century, among those Scottish Presbyterians, there began to be a reluctance to accept the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one, but that God is in three persons, one God, but three persons. And that view, that doubt and skepticism regarding the doctrine of the Trinity expressed itself in religious thought and religious writing among the Presbyterian denomination. Now, that viewpoint was not yet called Unitarianism, but that's what Unitarianism believes. It's not Trinitarianism, it is Unitarianism. In other words, that God is one person and one person alone, that being the Father. But this doctrine that had arisen in the church was not new under the sun. If you care to read church history, you will find that it found its embryo very early in the early church, from a church father called Arius. This is him up on the screen. And Arius taught, along with other fathers such as Oregon, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself was not God, did not claim to be God, and we should not believe that he is God. He taught that the Lord Jesus was not one substance with divinity. I would have to say that that doctrine didn't get much air outside because right away the church at large rejected outright as heresy the Arian doctrine that our Lord Jesus Christ is not God. And if there's any Church of Ireland people here or even Presbyterians, you will probably be more familiar than some people in the hall here with the Nicene Creed. And it was at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325 that Arius' teaching on the non-deity of the Lord Jesus Christ was outrightly rejected by the church of the Lord. So that movement that propounded that the Lord Jesus was not God did not gain any real impetus until the time of the Reformation. Next slide that you see is a man called Servetus. He was a Spaniard, and he was also an Arian in his belief. He lived from 1511 through to 1553, and he is considered by many as the founder of Unitarianism in continental Europe. He denied that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and he wrote a strong polemic against the doctrine of the Trinity entitled, On the Errors of the Trinity in Seven Books. Seven books trying to prove that God is not three in one. It was published in 1531. And he asserted, I quote, your trinity is the product of subtlety and madness. The gospel knows nothing of it. Now, as you can imagine, just as I'm stating such things tonight in a Christian audience, during the Reformation times, such statements and writings brought swift condemnation from the religious authorities of the day. And this man, Servetus, had to flee to France and stayed in France in exile. He even had to change his name. And for several decades, he escaped inquisition only to be later executed by the reformer John Calvin in 1553. You didn't know, perhaps, that Protestant reformers also executed people as martyrs uh, as well as 
Catholics putting Protestant martyrs to death. That is part of our history, perhaps, that is less to be desired, but nevertheless, it is accurate. Another who contributed to this early Unitarian doctrine was this Faustus Socinus, 1539-1604. He believed that the Holy Scriptures should be interpreted rationally. Not so much a need for faith, but a need to understand and reason and rationalize the Scriptures. And therefore, he believed that God, in essence, was one, only God the Father. Now, that is the roots, if you like, of Unitarianism. They would look back to Arius in the early church who believed that Jesus was not God. But really, the embryo of their beginnings can be found just after the Reformation or during the Reformation period in these two individuals. But when we come now to look at the history of Unitarianism in Ireland, you see that this is a more modern concern in relation to church history. For the actual word Unitarianism was not coined and came into common usage until 1770, when a former Anglican minister named Theophilus Lindsay began to teach again that there was no trinity and that the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ was some doctrine enforced upon the church in later years and was not the true belief of the Christian church. And he started again to openly espouse Unitarian doctrine, and he founded a Unitarian chapel in central London. The next man that you see on your screen was one of the earliest members of that church, the scientist Joseph Priestley, who actually was the discoverer of oxygen. Now, when we come and move from London here to Ulster, we find that Ulster Presbyterians, just like all Orthodox Christians, were absolutely astounded and alarmed at these heretical views concerning the person of the Lord Jesus and the authority of the Holy Scripture. They were even more alarmed when they found that these doctrines were gaining root in some Presbyterian churches, some of the oldest churches in County Antrim and County Down, incidentally, where many of the Unitarian churches still reside. Their leaders didn't know what to do. They came together. They deliberated over this matter of false doctrine, and they decided that the only response that was really necessary and had to be made was a new subscription to the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can see up here on the left the Westminster Confession of Faith in a modern edition. This is one of the originals from which the larger and shorter catechism with scriptural proofs has come. And this is Westminster Abbey in the middle, where the Westminster Confession of Faith was authored. It took place in 1643, when the English Parliament decided that, I quote, learned and godly judicious divines should meet together in Westminster Abbey in order to provide advice on issues of worship, doctrine, government, and church discipline. Now, the Church of England did not adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith, although it was many Church of England divines who authored it. But many of what became known as the dissenting Reformed Protestant congregations, Presbyterian and other Reformed free churches, adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith, as it were, as their confession of doctrine and belief. Now, immediately, 
these ministers and godly men in Ulster decided that there was needing to be a subscription once again to the Westminster Confession. These liberal ministers that were beginning to espouse Aryan doctrine here in Ulster were in an uproar. They were unhappy with these views of the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the year 1726, John Abernethy, who was also the leader of the so-called New Light Movement, along with 16 other ministers, refused to sign the Westminster Confession of Faith. They refused, in other words, to subscribe to the doctrine, and they and their congregations were subsequently expelled from the presbytery of the Synod of Ulster. Now, that was the birthplace of the non-subscribing Presbyterian Church of Ireland. Irish Unitarianism was also strengthened by the influence of the great American Unitarian, William Ellerly Channing. He was a preacher and a writer in Boston, Massachusetts, and the reason why I refer to him is he has had one of the greatest impacts on American Unitarianism, where it thrives more than anywhere else in the whole world. And in fact, in his day, he had a great influence on Harvard Divinity School and other U.S. Protestant seminary. He turned them to liberal thinking. Now, here we come to a great Protestant reformer in our modern age here in Ulster. For the battle was not lost with Arianism and Ulster Presbyterianism, but in the 1820s and 1830s, the conservative Northern Ireland Presbyterian leader, the Reverend Henry Cook, came to the fore. Henry Cook took it upon himself to fight Arianism in Irish Presbyterianism. He said himself that he wanted to rescue Irish Presbyterianism from, I quote, the bog of indifference and moral laxity. And Irish Presbyterians could be doing with some men like that today. Under the influence of those Aryan views, he wanted to save those churches from Orthodox Christian extinction. And Cook's energies didn't just limit to the north, but he also went into the south of Ireland. He did not confine himself to Ulster. And from his work, I believe, anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, there are only two, there were only two churches, and still are only two Unitarian churches in the south of Ireland today, one in Dublin and St. Stephen's Green and the other in Cork. Let me just update you on the situation of that one church in Dublin today. This is the Unitarian Church in St. Stephen's Green in the city of Dublin. And the congregation testifies up to date to now somewhat to having a kind of revival on their hands in recent days. Their Sunday morning congregations have risen from 15 to 20 to 60 to 80, and they testify that many young Roman Catholics and other people from non-religious backgrounds are searching, this is what they say, a new kind of spirituality in Ireland, the Ireland of the Celtic Tiger. In other words, they're searching for a modern Christianity that will fit in and conform to their reasonable, rational mind. There are currently 32 churches in Northern Ireland, non-subscribing Presbyterian Unitarian churches. If you look at the next slide, you'll see up here on the left, that is one of the churches uh, here in Ulster, that is the Crumlin Church. Over here is the Moira Church. 
Down here is the Kalinchi Church, and this is the Rosemary Street Church, which I think is the oldest Presbyterian church in the whole of Ireland. Uh, it was established in the 1600s, 1644, and that church was erected in 1783. On your next slide, most of you will recognize that one. It's only round the corner. It's only round the corner, and that is the Mount Pottinger non-subscribing Presbyterian Church on Castle Ray Street. There's only two churches in the Republic, and in Northern Ireland and the South of Ireland, there's about 4,000 members, 20 ministers, both men and women clergy, and the non-subscribing Presbyterian Church in Ireland, and please mark this, it's astounding, is a member of the Irish Council of Churches. Now, you will be gobsmacked when you hear tonight what they believe, how they could be a member of the Irish Council of Churches. Other members of the Irish Council of Churches, I hasten to add, are the Church of Ireland, the Methodist Church in Ireland, and the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, along with others. Now, let's broaden it out for a moment to talk about Unitarianism worldwide, because although individual Unitarian churches are autonomous, that means they rule themselves they are linked together by a general assembly and by a united group called the Unitarian Universalist Association. They linked together, and in 1995, there was approximately 195 of these congregations in Britain, in the Commonwealth countries, in Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. There were estimated to be 15,000 Unitarians whereas there are estimated as many as half a million Unitarians in America today. Unitarianism also can be found in Romania, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, West Germany, and even in India. I'm told that they are growing at 4% rate annually. The church in Britain is a member also of the British Council of Churches, and Unitarianism Worldwide is a member of the World Congress of Faiths. Now we're going to come to look at what they believe. And if the statement that I gave you from the St. Stephen's Church in Dublin is not enough to take the breath from your lungs, here's another one that is an official publication of the General Assembly, if you like, of Unitarianism, and they are trying to define for us, not my words, their words, what Unitarianism is. Listen carefully. Unitarianism is a liberal religious movement arising out of Christianity. Many Unitarians today, if I can just say in parenthesis, will not claim now to be Christians in the traditional sense. It goes on, expressing itself largely, but not wholly in Christian forms and terms. They're not restricting themselves to the definitions and doctrines of Christianity goes on, and in the spirit of the man Jesus. The man Jesus. It is a liberal belief in rejecting the ideas of a unique and final revelation of truth. And it trusts men to discover and believe as much as they can for themselves. It is a religious movement in as much as it has churches and a ministry and ways of worship, and it is glad to remain Christian where it can, but glad also to discover other truth and beauty and goodness in other faiths 
and all our lives, Unitarians know of no better man in religion than Jesus of Nazareth, but they believe that there have been other like him in the past and that there will be others like him again in the future. I think that you can see right away that the non-subscribing Presbyterian church in Ireland is far from Presbyterian, let alone far from Christian. And so I want to take a deeper look at this and spend some time in doing so. What Unitarianism teaches. Now, although it does not have a set group of doctrines and, and a taught dogma, they do have beliefs and general tenets of faith that this whole umbrella of Unitarianism right around the globe adhere to. Let's look first of all at their belief concerning deity. God. What do they say about God? Well, in their name they confess right away that they believe in one God. Well, we agree with them there. But they believe that that one God has only one personality, and that personality is expressed in the Father. But you know something? Modern Unitarianism today has reached such a stage that several people in it believe that no human language is adequate to define God at all. Of course, we believe that too, in one sense. Uh, we can't define God, otherwise he wouldn't be God. But some Unitarians have found it even helpful not to use the word God at all. They're not sure what God is, who God is. So you're better to leave God out of this religion. Seems very strange, doesn't it? Why do we believe in a triune Godhead? I hope, perhaps in the not-too-distant future, to do, if you like, uh, the transverse of what we've been doing in these weeks and actually lay down the fundamentals of our faith and go into it in great, great detail, detail that we can't have time uh, to, or we don't have time to, to do with these evenings. But let's just turn for a moment to Genesis chapter 1 to just make a few marks on the Scriptures regarding this doctrine of the Trinity that we believe in and that the church historically has propounded. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And I know that some of you were using these verses last week with the Mormons. And God said, let us, notice the plural, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let us give him dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. Some people say, well, this is the angels talking with God and God to the angels. But it says in verse 27, so God created man. And we are not made in the likeness of angels. We are made in the likeness of God. When we turn to another scene in chapter 11, we see that the plural is also used of God. Here is the Tower of Babel, and man, a bit akin to Unitarianism and confusing cults and false faiths in our world today are trying to get to God on their own terms. But it says in verse 7, God said, Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, So the Lord scattered them abroad. 
not angels, not seraphim or cherubim or any other supernatural being. God said, let us, in the plural. And Elohim in the Old Testament scriptures is a plural name for God. Now let us come to the New Testament for a moment. If we turn to Matthew 28, we come to what has been commonly called the baptismal formula of the Christian church. Some other false cults tell us, and uh, sects of Pentecostalism, incidentally also oneness Pentecostalism, found in the Church of God, not the Brethren form, but the Pentecostal form of the Church of God, the oneness movement here in Ulster, teach that we should baptize in the name of Jesus. But here we find that clearly taught, the Lord's instruction is, in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now I want you to note that it says baptizing them in the name, singular. One name, but that name is expressed in three personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That is the essence of the Trinity. One substance. All God, very God, but expressed in three persons. You know, many other scriptures I could show you this evening. We don't have time to do it. But let, get, let me give you something that helps me in remembering some verses that shed light on the doctrine of the Trinity. They are all three first chapters in the Holy Scriptures in the New Testament. The first is John 1. John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word being Christ, the Logos, the expression of God. Verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was with Him, and the Word was God. John 1. Hebrews 1, God says unto the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Revelation 1. God is described as Alpha and Omega. And as you go down that chapter and later on in that book, you find that the Lord Jesus is also described as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And can there be two firsts and two lasts? There cannot be. Those are scriptures that allocate divinity to the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. None other greater than Thomas's confession that he falls at the feet of the risen Glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, My Lord and my God. Great is the mystery of godliness, Paul says to Timothy. God manifest in the flesh. I could go on and on. The fullness, Colossians 1, of the Godhead bodily dwells in Christ. But what of the other scriptures that point to the Lord Jesus Christ referring to the Holy Spirit? What of his baptism? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, where he is in the water, the dove-like creature comes down from the sky, and the voice is heard from glory of the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Three persons. But there is one God, as Moses taught the people to say, inspired of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. We believe in one God. But we believe in the scriptural doctrine of the Trinity, and if God pleases, I'll expound it in more detail in days that are yet to be. But let's look at what they teach. 
as Unitarians concerning the Bible. Well, they teach that man is to be guided by his individual conscience. Isn't that a very dangerous teaching? When we consider Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and we know that everything that the fall of man has wrought upon the old human nature. But Unitarians teach that man is to be guided by his own human reason. That is the source which is to believe you. Now, they will admit that the Bible is a helpful guide and it does, uh, it does contain religious insights and wisdom, yet they reject the Holy Scriptures as God's Word, inspired and God-breathed. In fact, they go as far to say as this is one of many divine books. It's not the only holy book in the world. The writings of Buddha are holy and Muhammad and Confucius and many others. They say that God is continuing to reveal His truth today to pure people and good people. There is this idea of universal inspiration in life in some kind of abstract way, in the order and beauty of nature, in moral standards and neighborliness and ch charitableness all around. Those good spiritual desires that you have, those human aspirations in love for what is good and pure, that is how God speaks today. Is that what God's Word testifies to? Turn with me for a moment to Isaiah chapter 8. Let me say that you should take these Scriptures down because all of these have reference to all of the cults and the false religions that we touch upon these evenings. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20. God says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, not my word in nature or human conscience or rationale or aspiration, but this word, the law and the testimony, and if they speak not according to it, it is because there is no light in them. It doesn't matter if they call themselves the organization of new light or not. It makes no difference. God's Word is clear. Now come to John 17 to look at the words of the Lord Jesus as He prays to His Father. John 17. Verse 17. Speaking of His people praying for His church he says, sanctify them through thy truth. What is his truth? Thy word is truth. God's word is the only truth. We read at the very beginning of our meeting, 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 21, that testifies that the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of reason and human rationale and intellectual aptitude is not how God reveals his truth to men, but God reveals his truth through the foolishness of the message preached. That is Christ and him crucified. Foolishness to the Greek, a stumbling block to the Jew. That's why they couldn't grasp it in all the religious wisdom and intellectual rationale. If we are to turn to 2 Corinthians, 
on from chapter 1. Should be more pages rustling than that now. Don't fall asleep or get lazy. 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 14. This is an absolute contradistinction to what Unitarianism teaches. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. If there was ever a proof that those who espouse Unitarian doctrine are not saved and cannot be such as this, because they have rejected the true gospel, and they have chosen man's wisdom over God. That is what they believe concerning the Bible. Yet the Bible, this is the very ironic thing about it. They actually use the Bible on many occasions to prove some of their doctrines, yet in the next breath they tell us that the Bible really can't be relied upon and it is just another holy book. Let's look thirdly at what they teach concerning the person of Christ. And I have tried to teach you each week that one of the chief marks of a cult is when you ask them, what think you of Christ? They have a blasphemous, sacrilegious, denigrating view of our blessed Savior. Unitarianism does not feel on that kind either. They teach, as you've heard, that the Lord Jesus Christ was and is only a man. They teach that he should not be worshipped in fact, they say he is an example, a good one at that. And he has even shown us what man can be if he listens to God and follows God's Spirit. But they say that the Lord Jesus Christ is only one of many great leaders in the world. John Mendelssohn is a respected Unitarian minister. He has stated these words. Now listen carefully, I quote them verbatim. I am willing to call myself a Christian only if in the next breath I am permitted to say that in varying degrees I am also a Jew, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Stoic, an admirer of Zoroaster, Confucius, and Socrates. Dr. Karl Jaworski, another Unitarian minister, has put it like this. Unitarians do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, either of Jewish hope or Christian fantasy. They steal it from their own mouths. They're not ashamed of it. Yet there are Christian churches and denominations in our land that are fellowshipping with such satanic darkness. What does God's Word say about the Lord Jesus? Turn to Matthew 16. I hope you're taking these down. Matthew 16, 16. This is the truth on which the church of Jesus Christ was built. Jesus said, Whom do men say that I am? Some said John the Baptist, some say Elias, some say Jeremiah. And he says to Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus retorted, Simon, 
flesh and blood. Human wisdom has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. I am the Son of God. John 5, verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. The Jews understood it. He was claiming to be God's Son, and if he was claiming to be God's Son, he was claiming to be, in essence, God. When we turn to John 10, we see it again in verse 30. He says, I and my Father are one. And in John 14, 6, he claims that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Greek is emphatic, not a way, not a truth, not a life, but the way, the truth, the only life. For no man can come to the Father but by him. When we move from the person of Christ to the work of Christ, his death, we see that Unitarianism does not believe that man needs a mediator. Man does not need a savior because man intrinsically is good. They believe in the innocence of the little child. Therefore, they don't need to believe in some kind of sacrificial death or substitutionary atonement. That's why many Unitarian congregations don't observe communion. And those that do observe communion, all it is for them is a mere remembrance of the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet what does Romans 3.20 tell us? Man does need a Savior. Man does need a Redeemer. Tells us, for by the works of the law shall no man be justified. Look to Ephesians 2 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Jesus. Now in his life he fulfilled all the law, praised his holy name. And he had to do such if he was going to be our Savior. But the atoning work was at Calvary, not at Gethsemane, at Calvary, where he shed his precious blood for us. Look at verse 18. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. First Peter 3 and verse 18 says how he is the just, justified the unjust and brought us to God by his precious blood. But they denigrate the blood. They don't believe in the blood. Yet without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Scripture's clear on that one. Then we move from the death of Christ to the resurrection of Christ. And wait for it, they interpret the resurrection of Christ as the resurrection of Christ's deeds and Christ's thoughts and teachings living on in the lives of other people all throughout history. Just us thinking about him and talking about him and teaching about him. In fact, 
There is no physical or spiritual resurrection of the body of the Lord or of ourselves. Yet in Luke 24, verses 5 and 6, the angel said, Why seek ye the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He is risen. As he said. What about 1 Corinthians 15? We can't not turn to this chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. He was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Can you get any clearer than that? And then when you move to verses 17 to 20, this is the outcome if he didn't rise. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Unitarian, if you're here, you're still in your sins and you'll never get out of them unless you believe in the crucified and risen Savior. Then they also which are fallen asleep are perished. Our dead loved ones are gone. They're lost if there's no resurrection. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You're miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. My friends, I think you can see clearly that Scripture contradicts what Unitarianism teaches. What about the Holy Spirit? Well, they believe the Holy Spirit is the influence of Christ's teaching today in our world upon people. Or they also believe, variantly, that the Holy Spirit is the way of revealing himself in our lives. Our lives take a change. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. He reveals himself through the joys and through the sorrows of life in some strange, abstract way. Or, alternatively, the Holy Spirit is the power beyond us, that source of divinity that is moving behind everything in the universe. But he is not a person. And why would he need to be there? as a person, if man doesn't need to be saved, if man is essentially good, he doesn't need to be regenerated and changed and be made a new creature in Christ. He doesn't need to be sanctified. It's Psalm 51 verse 5 says that we were born in iniquity. We were shapen in sin. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and sin. Did my mother conceive me? What did the Lord say in Matthew 15, 19? Out of the heart of mankind proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, on and on and on. Romans 3 and verse 10 testifies the same, that there is no difference. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John 16, 7 tells us the Lord Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him. Personality. Unto you. Acts 5, 3 and 4 that I've told you about before, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied, it says, to the Holy Ghost. And it also says that they lied to God because the Holy Ghost is God. And he is a person. He can be lied 
2. What about when we come to salvation? What do they teach concerning this? Well, they are called Unitarian Universalists, and they believe ultimately that everybody will be all right in the end because they believe all faiths are equally valid schemes and systems to bring us to God, and Jesus belongs to a class of great saviors of mankind. Yet what does John 10:9 say? Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. What does the apostle say in Acts 4 and verse 12? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. What did Paul say to the desperate Philippian jailer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I want you to witness tonight the arrogant commentary of Unitarian man and all of his rationale and intellectual aptitude in response to Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus. This is what Mendelssohn, John Mendelssohn said. In response to Paul's answer, Here was the track of authoritarianism on which the orthodox Christianity would run from Paul's day to our own. It did not occur to Paul, mark this, that the jailer might have some thoughts and insights of his own worth probing and nurturing. Paul saw no reason whatsoever for encouraging the man to think to use his own mind, to exercise his reason, to ponder the experiences of heart and conscience for satisfying religious answers. Paul said none of the words that might have moved Christianity in the direction of freedom and personal responsibility. Instead, he uttered a dogma. He said, in effect, this is what is, or this is not something to discuss, to weigh, to test by experience. No, this is something you simply accept. Praise God! It wasn't to be doubted. It wasn't to be discussed. It wasn't to have human wisdom to augment it. It was to be accepted. Well, this is his finishing retort. Unitarian Universalists will have none of it. Well, if you have none of it, you will have none of Christ's salvation. What about the future? Well, some of them believe in personal immortality. Some of them believe we live on in the deeds and thoughts that we have left behind and the memories of others. Some just don't know, but ultimately they don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell, even though it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. Many other scriptures. I'll have to leave you with them tonight. Job 19, 25 to 26. Matthew 25, 46. John 5, 28, telling in verse 29 as well about the resurrection of the just unto life and the resurrection of the damned unto eternal perdition. What did Job say? That on that day, his flesh that had eaten, been eaten with worms would stand and see God. His Redeemer, who he knew, was alive. Even when it comes to prayer, our next point in the supernatural, they believe prayer is just thing, something that affects ourselves. It changes ourselves so that we become better people, so that we become an example to others and in turn change others. And let me say that it is worrying to me that although I agree that 
probably prayer changes us maybe more at times than it changes things. There is a worrying trend in skeptic evangelicalism today that suggests sometimes a, a fatalism that God does not answer prayer and change things. Scripture says it does. Yet the Unitarians don't like praying in Jesus' name because we don't need a mediator. Yet Scripture says that we ought to pray in Jesus' name. The Lord Jesus in John 16, 23 said, Whatever you ask in his name, according to the Father's will, he would give it. 1 John 5, 14 says that our confidence is that because we pray through the Lord Jesus, he, the Father, hears us. Can I say, just like many of the cults that we have pondered these last few weeks, they are full of good works at times. There were some lovely gentlemen that we were discussing these matters with last week in the Mormon faith, plight, full of good works, seemingly gracious in their approach. And Unitarianism is extremely charitable. It's full of kindness. It fights for the freedom of others at times, even against the, the doctrines that we would believe and the practical morality that we espouse, yet they are fighters for freedom and justice and peace and tolerance. But whatever they are, they are far from Christian. In fact, they are a non-Christian cult with liberal humanistic attitudes, liberal humanistic beliefs and practices. And I declare in the authority of God's Word that Unitarianism as a term and the term Christian are mutually exclusive. By their definition, Christianity is Trinitarian. By their history, Christianity is historically rooted in the Orthodox faith and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, His person and work, and the Apostles' doctrine. And it is mutually exclusive in its theology that we have heard tonight. W.P. Nicholson, that great evangelist and revivalist of a bygone age here in Ulster, was preaching in the assembly buildings down in the center of Belfast. And he came in his preaching message to touch upon the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he preached on the subject, he remembered that there was a bookshop below him, and of course in his own imitable and even little ignorant way, he said, and as for that accursed bookshop down the stairs, you couldn't even buy a book on the blood. And from that came the evangelical bookshop that we have today on College Square. But he ended that meeting that particular evening by saying, now we're going to sing, there's power in the blood. And he told the, the deacons to open all the doors and all the windows of that building, and he said, sing it at the top of your voice, and let those unbloody Unitarians in Rosemary Street Hear you sing it. That's what we're going to do tonight. There's another hymn that goes like this. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough. If you're not saved tonight, you need to know this. If you're a Unitarian, if you belong to any other religion or cult that does not tell us that salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone you need to hear listen it is enough that Jesus died 
and Jesus died for me. Hallelujah. The blood will never lose its power. I might lose my power and this church might lose its power. Your denomination might lose its power. But Jesus never. Glory to his name. Lord, we thank thee tonight for a mighty saviour. Sin destroying, Satan overcoming, world defeating saviour. Who alone has power to save, seeing he ever liveth. Oh, dear God, we thank you that we rest upon that rock, Christ Jesus. But Lord, tonight, if there's one that is resting on self or resting on some sacrament or resting on some system, that, Lord, you would give them the light of your spirit to see that the Savior alone can save them from sin and can take them to heaven. Oh, God, would you move tonight in our midst Make it clear and plain that they must be born again. And we exalt and praise as we close this meeting tonight the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.